What a great series we've been having. Some amazing teachings about practicing the way of Jesus. There's been so much gold from just turning up, I think is how Katie started this series. We've talked about prayer last week. Renee did a great message about forgiveness. We've heard about silence and solitude from Hayden and Sabbath from Tony. And we could add other practices about practicing the way of Jesus, spending time with God through his word. We could talk about liturgical prayer. We could talk about the power of worship fasting, giving, tithing, generosity, serving, journaling. Uh, all of these are amazing ways that we can practice the way of Jesus. But I want to uh, really look at today and next week. I want to look at the big question of why practice the way of Jesus at all? Why does it matter? Matthew 4, 18 says this. Oh, let me find it here. Matthew 4.18 says this. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, that's Jesus, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I mean, if you got your Bible out today, follow me. That's a big word, and we're going to come back to that one. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father followed them. This is a big scripture, but really what we're being introduced to here, because if this seems a little crazy to us, uh, why would somebody just walking along one day be able to say, come follow me and somebody leave their business, leave their family and just go follow him? There's something going on here. And they were entering this life of practicing the way of Jesus. I don't know how you've been feeling over the last few weeks as we've been talking about practicing the way of Jesus and the different practices. But I hope you can identify with how I've felt for much of my life which is that sometimes there can be a guilt about not doing what you think you should be doing. I don't experience that anymore in my life, but I can think of a long time in my walk with Jesus where I never felt like I was reading the Bible enough, where I never felt like I was praying enough, where I didn't feel like I was putting God first in my day enough or getting up early enough with Him or spending enough time with Him. And I know as I've talked with so many of you out there that we also, that, that like this is a common experience, that there can be low levels of guilt or sometimes high levels of guilt of the sense of, oh, I know I ought to, or I know I should, but I just don't. And I know for some of you, you haven't read your Bible yourself in a really long time, or you don't like, you don't have these practices of really learning the way of Jesus in your life. Um, and, and we know that sense of guilt when, we, when we're not doing what we think we should be doing. And we also need to be aware that there can be a dangerous sense of pride when we've done it. Oh, I spent my 30 minutes with God this morning, tick, look at me, I'm an awesome Christian, or something like that. There can be this danger of pride in that. Sometimes spiritual practices can go into the sort of category of, I know I should eat better, I know I should eat less potato chips, I know I should work less, uh, that's not me anymore, I'm a changed man. I know I should, uh, I should lose a few kilos, um, maybe I could 
lose one or two i don't know but it, it it's like it can it's sad when spiritual practices can end up in this category and while when we think of spiritual practices experiencing this type of guilt or the should do or this ought to along the way is probably pretty normal living your whole christian life with that sense is completely optional I mean, I was talking with an older guy in our church the other day, and he was sharing with me, after following Jesus for 50 odd years, he was sharing with me how for a lot of his Christian life, it's like these times with these spiritual practices have felt a bit dry or sort of like he had to, but something had clicked in him where now he's excited about them, where he just loves it, where there's a sense of freedom in the practices. And I want that for every single person in our church to just be loving and enjoying and hungry for practicing the way of Jesus. I don't know where this uh, sense of guilt might come from. It's probably different for every one of us, but I've been thinking it could be one of these things. Sometimes we can have a performance-based mindset towards God. Sometimes we can think, well, when I do, if I read enough of the Bible and I spend enough time, then it's like tick, tick, tick. And when we don't do that, it's like cross, 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 bad Christian today, not good enough. We can have this sort of mindset. Sometimes in our mind, we can have separated the sacred and the secular. So if we don't get enough sacred in our life, we sort of feel like, man, I'm not really doing this thing. We're in a culture that no doubt is hugely feelings led. And so, man, when we're not feeling it, or even in we, when we are doing the practices, if it's not associated with whatever the feelings or the highs we think it should be, it sort of doesn't cause us to get excited about doing it again. Maybe actually that sense, that, that low sense of I ought to, I should be, maybe it's actually, a, it's not a guilt or a bad thing. Maybe it's a Holy Spirit conviction calling you into something that your soul's aching for and crying out for. Maybe it's a misunderstanding of grace. I know that some people, they just think grace means I don't need to practice anything and be intentional about following Jesus because I'm saved. And it's a complete misunderstanding of what it means to be saved. Or maybe for some of us, it's a misunderstanding of the idea of religion in general. It's like religion is a dirty word in our culture, but I love how Brian Zahn puts it here. And I want to read this to you. Most 21st century Westerners are very reluctant to identify themselves as religious. But this is a mistake. We have surrendered to the Enlightenment's assault upon religion. Today, the insipid mantra is, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. The idea is that the spiritual person has transcended the oppressive structures of what is dismissed with a snare as organized religion. It always comes with a sense of arrogance to it too. To be spiritual is acceptable, to be religious is not. We've, 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 just as a sign, we've done this in the church. We said, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And I get what we're trying to say, but it's a religion too. I, the, but the I'm not religious, but spiritual motto is really just a modern rejection of time-tested wisdom in favor of a make it up as you go approach. The assumption is that each person's approach to the development of a healthy spiritual life is as valid as any other. The dogma of vague spirituality is that we are all capable of properly forming our spiritual lives as private individuals independent of any received tradition. Of course, this is all nonsense. 
It's comparable to a 10-year-old watching reruns of Kung Fu and thinking he has mastered the martial arts. Children failing about in their pajamas on a Saturday morning might be an entertaining way to pass the time, but it shouldn't be confused with actually learning Kung Fu. And neither should boutique spirituality be confused with the practices that have been historically identified with Christian spiritual formation. And this is what we need to get here, guys, is that practicing the way of Jesus through these ancient traditions, through these ancient practices, are tried and true ways of seeing our lives formed in Christ-likeness, of engaging in his presence, of allowing him to transform us into the people that he's wanting to transform us into so that we might be agents of his redemption in this world. And we need to remember and maybe we don't often think about it like this, but this is a good way to think about it, that we're actually all engaged in spiritual practices. It's just whether or not they are by design or default, that actually everything in our lives is spiritual, and every day we are all practicing a way of life. The question is, are your practices aiding in your transformation into Christ-likeness? Are they helping you live in God's kingdom, or are they actually discipling you in the ways of the world, in individualism, in materialism, in me, me, me-ism? When we go to the mall, we're engaging in a spiritual practice of materialism. When we check our phones a thousand times a day, we're engaged in a spiritual practice of constant connectivity and give me another dopamine hit. When we sleep with our phone next to us, or we choose the beach, or kids' sports over gathering with the saints when the surf's up, if that, that's a, and we choose that over God's people, that is a spiritual practice. When we keep all of our money for ourselves, when we get into debt over things that depreciate, when we visit the nail salon, the tanning salon, the gym, we're actually engaged in spiritual practices that have spiritual outcomes in our life. So the point is not so much, are you uh, engaged in spiritual practices, but are you engaged in the type of practices that are forming you into Christ-likeness? And that's what I want to ask today. We, we're talking about that. Why practice the way of Jesus in the first place? And I want to help us this week and next week to see God and ourselves in his story in such a way that pulls us towards practicing the way of Jesus, that gets us excited about trying new things and forming new habits, rather than feeling guilty or it should be. It's like a, I want to. And that is just about the paradigms we see it with. How do we understand what it means to be a Christian or a disciple or a follower in such a way that actually pulls us towards these things rather than these being like optional extras for super Christians? What do we even imagine we're doing in this life as disciples or followers of Christians? What do we imagine that is? What's our imagination for that? And that's what we're going to address. But today, to address it, I want to talk about three things. Three things, nice and simple for us. The first is God's big story. The second is Jesus as rabbi. And the third is what it means to be saved. And as we bring these things together, I'm hoping a hunger for greater spiritual practices rises up within us. The first, God's big story. God's big story. We can tell it really simply. It doesn't have to be complicated. It goes like this, creation, fall, redemption. Creation, 
full redemption. When you look and you read the Bible and you see the stories of God, we see this over and over again. The Bible is filled with the story, creation, fall, redemption. And over and over, that's like the meta narrative. That's the big story arc of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption. But it's also repeated a thousand times in a thousand different people's story. God creates we fall, but God redeems. And that is what God is doing in this world. But hey, our view of what theologically you'd call eschatology, eschatology just means your view of the end times, your view of how God is redeeming, uh, shapes the way we think about practicing the way of Jesus immensely. What you think of when you think of heaven and the eternal life matters as it shapes how you live today. And the reality is this idea of creation for redemption is very different from how many people see the world. In fact, many of people in our church, I know because I've heard it, is like the world's bad. God's coming back to take all the Christians away, some sort of rapture or something. And he's happy leaving the world to go to hell in a handbasket. But that is not the story the Bible teaches. It's a story that God loves us and he loves the world and he created it. And it's fallen and that broke his heart. But through Jesus and his people, he's bringing about a redemption through this thing called the kingdom of God. You know, I was at an appointment this week and uh, at a health practitioner and I was getting some work done on my shoulder. And this person's not a follower of Jesus, but I've been seeing them for about a year. And just in the middle of getting some treatment, she asked me, she said, hey, I treat a lot of Christians and... Um, Heaps of them keep talking to me about the mark of the beast. Can you tell me what that's about? And honestly, in that moment, my heart sunk because with everything going on in COVID, this was a perfect example. If anyone is talking to you about the mark of the beast in this time, it reflects what I believe. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to gently pastorally burst some bubbles that that uh, it reflects a very bad theological view of eschatology and that we actually need this to be reformed. I thought, man, how horrible her experience of actually uh, treating Christians in this time was that they are fearful, that they're afraid of this mark of the beast, and all of things rather than an idea of peace. And she didn't really know what it was about. So I explained it to her. We had a great conversation. But uh, we've got some recommended reading. You can go to our website. Maybe a link will pop up if I've put some books about Revelation there. But just real simply, because it's a part of what we're talking today, there's four main ways to interpret the book of Revelation. And based on the way that you interpret it, that hugely shapes your perspective of eschatology or end times. And uh, even though there's four different ways, there's one major way that most theologians agree with, and the other ones would be sort of like minor perspectives held. And so I just want to break these down for you. Hopefully for all of you, um, that many of you probably hold one of these perspectives, or you haven't really thought about it a lot, so you've got a piecemeal one. Hopefully this will inspire you to dig deeper and stop talking about the mark of the beast and understand some of these scriptures a bit better. But the first one is this. It's a preterist view of the of Revelation. What does this simply mean? That everything, you read Revelation, the last book in the Bible, as if everything has already happened, and this means that it had to have been written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, 
um, which it was clearly written after that, but that is one of the views. It's not really widely held by many people, um, but that is one of the views. The second view is the historicist view. This view uh, really it divides, and this was popular for a while in church history, but it divides history into seven periods of time typified by the seven churches in the book of Revelation and it syncs up with the seven scrolls and it interprets Western church history this way. And as the world's opened up and as we've become more aware, we realize the West is not the center of the world, even though the West is awesome, the West is not the center of the world. In fact, at the moment, the church is moving and mobilizing in more powerful ways through the East. And so this was very like Western way to read Revelation. And so not many people hold the historicist view anymore. The third view, which I think is probably where a lot of people, especially in the charismatic church tradition, have some of their perspectives about Revelation, is the futurist view. The futurist view believes that everything in Revelation is what's going to take place in the future, right before the return of Christ. It gives rise to the idea of dispensationalism, which is very popular in the charismatic church. But we need to understand that this way of looking at Revelation is less than 200 years old. So 1800 years of church history, nobody looked at it this way. It interprets everything in the book of Revelation literally and chronologically. It's tied to the, the restoration of political Israel. So in 1940, seven or 46 when the political Israel was destroyed, this whole movement, this whole idea, this whole way of thinking started getting more popularity. Uh, and it really has this idea that um, the rapture is injected into the text. Rapture is not found in Revelation. You have to assume rapture to read it, to find the, you know, to interpret it this way. It's got the idea that Jesus will come back secretly first and he'll rapture his people away. Then there'll be seven years of tribulation. Then uh, where all the nations gather to rage war against Israel. And then Jesus comes back and he smashes them and begins his thousand year reign on earth. Uh, however, the raptured believers live in like a hovering Jerusalem above the earth and sometimes engage with the earth. It's a bit of a head trip. And, uh, but then the demonic forces after a thousand years sort of come back again and they rage war for a final time against Jesus and his people and Jesus defeats them again. Then the new Jerusalem is instigated and his eternal reign begins. And this whole view has the assumption that God still has two covenant peoples, which the church has not believed for the first 1800 years of church history, that they believe that the church fulfills the covenant people of the, the original covenant people, Jews, but this view requires that God has two covenant people, the Jews and the church, as opposed to the Jews being, oh, the church being the fulfillment of it. And hopefully uh, this is interesting to somebody out there, but it, it's also um, this, this whole idea actually came from one person's dream. Her name was Margaret MacDonald in 1830. She had a dream of a secret return of Christ and so even though for 1800 years the church didn't believe this, then this guy Darby got a hold of this. He ran prophetic conferences. He had been sort of expelled from the classic theological seminaries and he believed in two covenant peoples. And so he got Margaret in the dream and he put this whole thing together and this started this idea of dispensationalism and he incorporated the theology all together. And then it got picked up by a very famous 
uh, person named Schofield, and that's how this whole idea took off and why it's in the charismatic tradition, which is uh, interesting in itself. So that is the third way of looking at it, and I'll circle back to that in a moment. And the fourth way is called the idealist view. And it's important to say that this would be the major view of theologians, of people doing rigorous theological study. It's certainly the major view of all the topmost revelation scholars in the world. And this view interprets revelation symbolically in light of the Old Testament references. If the futurist view actually looks at revelation, uh, trying to look at the world and see the signs and, and interprets it literally, the idealist view interprets it symbolically in light of Old Testament revelations. Revelation 1 tells us it's symbolic. There's 404 verses in Revelation, but there's 510 Old Testament references. That's more than the whole New Testament put together. And so this is the grid we need to, we interpret Revelation through using the Old Testament and we see that it's symbols telling us a story. Simply put, Revelation is an encouragement to the church um, that we are now the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Israel. It's an encouragement to not compromise, to give into the, don't give into the world system. You may suffer, you will suffer, and you may even die, but your eternal reward is far greater than any suffering you may face. It teaches that there's one return of Christ and it will be obvious to everybody. Why am I saying all of this? Why am I getting into all of this? Because how you see it matters. The views create something different in you. And if you're somebody out there and you believe in a rapture and you believe in the tribulation and you believe in this literal thousand year reign, I want to encourage you, those are triggers that you have a futurist view, to do some deeper reading, to do some expanded reading and allow God to speak to you through those things as you perhaps form an eschatology, a view of God's story on the earth that would cause you to practice the way of Jesus, of peace, not of fear. Of, of calm, not of worry, because the fruit is in the theology and we can see it that way. The second thing I want to say is Jesus is a rabbi. Jesus as a rabbi. Jesus was acknowledged as a rabbi before he was recognized as a son or savior or Lord or Messiah. Rabbis in Jesus' day were like the All Blacks when I was growing up. Everyone wanted to be one in their culture. They were the epitome of achievement and respect. And come follow me is the invitation of a rabbi. Jesus as rabbi was announcing the availability of the kingdom of God to all people. He was modeling what it looked like to live a life in this kingdom. He instructed others on how to live in it too. And he made it available through his mercy and grace and love on the cross. And he left his disciples to go on and make other apprentices, make other disciples, just as Jesus had done. I mean, many of us, we love that verse in Matthew 11, verse 28. Let's just turn there for a moment. Matthew 11, verse 28. It says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This whole thing, this is all rabbi. This is rabbi talk from Jesus. Yoke is a rabbi term for his teachings, his ways, 
his practices, his perspective. In fact, when you chose to follow a rabbi, you would start memorizing the rabbi's words. You would start interpreting the scriptures the way the rabbi interpreted them. You would start relating to God the way the rabbi related to God. You would live the way the rabbi lived and you would minister the way the rabbi ministered. So if you are a Christian, we have to see this whole thing through the lens of rabbi, not just son and savior. Those are great too, but rabbi is how Jesus started. And, and then we realize that we're becoming apprentices of him. We're not ticking a box. We're not just saying a prayer and now everything's all sweet. We're actually engaging in a way of life to learn it from Jesus. I remember uh, I, I did a little bit of building for a little bit with our great friend Stefan and uh, I knew not a lot about building. I I'm, I'm, might surprise you, I'm sort of handy, but I didn't know a lot. And you know, when you come along and you, you are trying to learn from somebody, you just learn by practicing certain things, how to tie up a string line, how to hammer a nail in properly, how to use sword and tools, how to measure accurately, how to set out a foundation. And these little practices, as you master them one by one, over time, I never stuck with it for long enough to become a carpenter, but you, you learn these practices over time and eventually you become a carpenter. This is exactly what we're supposed to be as followers of Jesus. We learn to pray like he did. We learn to live like he did. We learn to, to read the scripture like he did. We learn to treat people like he did. And over time, we become people that others can point at and go, that looks like a little Jesus over there, a Christian, a disciple. And so when we see God as king, we respect him. When we see him as savior, we have gratitude. When we see him as creator, we, have, we, we, we wanna be a servant. When we see him as friend, we have intimacy. When we see him as father, there's a sense of safety. Provider, we trust him. When we see him as Lord, there's reverence. But when we see him as rabbi, we become apprentices. And finally, the last thing I wanted to say is we need to make sure we understand correctly what it means to be saved. Sadly, many of us have a perspective that it's a transaction, that it's a prayer, that it's just this moment, but it's more than that. It's sort of like when we have that perspective, it's like transformation, generosity, church community, a life that glorifies God is an optional extra for those that want to go hardcore after God, for level 10 people, you know, for professional Christians like me or something like that. But Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. Paul used the word salvation, but they were talking about the same thing, life under God's rule life with God and for God. What it means to be saved is not just to say a prayer. That's just the decision moment to choose to become a follower. What it means to be saved is to enter the salvation type of life, the practicing the way of Jesus type of life. My first ever message, like more than 15, 16 years ago in our church, I remember using this line and it was just sort of like something that just came out like many of the things I say but it's stuck with me this whole time. And it's that Jesus isn't the icing on the cake of your life. The reality is, is that it's not like we've got most things together and we just need to add a little bit of Jesus to make sure eternity's sweet and everything's capped off nicely. No, God wants to pull you, part, pull you apart and put you back together again. He wants to rewire you from the inside out. I don't know if you've ever renovated a house. We did it once and I never ever want to do it again. 
but that is the reality of what, when we're actually giving our lives to God, what we're inviting him to do with us. That everything's gonna get messier before it gets more beautiful. That everything has to be ripped off, torn apart, and rebuilt again if you truly want the house to be new. And so he wants to do that with your heart and with your mind and with your habits and with your character. It's messy, but it's worth it. Once we understand this big story of God, creation, fall, redemption, this healthy eschatology view of the end times, that God is at work redeeming even right now, and he will complete his redeeming work with this new heaven, this new earth, where they're joined back together like in Genesis 1, rather than it being a garden, it's a vision of this beautiful city and uh, of people living well together. This is our vision of the future, and we're a part of creating it with God right now. Once we realize that he's a master, He's a master rabbi and that we and he makes God's rule available to us now if we would walk in the apprenticeship footsteps of Jesus, teaching us how to live. Man, we get a completely different idea of what it means to be saved and how practicing the way of Jesus is not an optional extra, but is at the core of what it means for what we're doing here together as a group of people. We can see spiritual practices are not optional extras for super Christians. They are at the core of what it means to be Christian in the first place. Look, we started this year when we came back from Sabbaticon Vision Sunday, talking about this idea of chapter two, talking about, I know I've been speaking fast, trying to fit it all in today, but talking about this idea of just slowing down the metronome. And as we've continued to seek God about what he's wanting to do with our church in chapter two, chapter one's been amazing. We've seen God do more than we could ever ask or imagine. We've seen hundreds and hundreds of people come into the kingdom and be discipled in, in that life through baptism. We've seen incredible things. We've seen God build a, a, a large church of his people in Mount Monganui and beyond. And honestly, it's amazing. But man, just in, my, in that sense of Katie and I leading the church, we just felt like God was like, yep, that's all awesome but there's more to the journey. There's more, I'm calling you deeper. I'm calling you into something different. I'm calling you to be more focused on forming people in Christ and less focused on just building the stuff of church. And we're like, that's what we've always been about. And so it's been a great time of refocusing. But as we've been imagining how to talk about that, we've been, we've been just keep coming back to this idea of practicing the way of Jesus as core of what it means for us to be a chapter two church, really being formed in Christ. You know, these times of COVID remind us, and so does all the survey results, they remind us that it's easier to build a church than it is to form disciples. But that is what we're here to do, and that's why I'm gonna keep inviting you to take the ways of Jesus seriously and to lean into them because there's such a joy and life in them. I keep thinking, I keep hearing from God, what is he doing in this time? He's calling us deeper into him and into his ways. And so I want you to respond to the call. Pick up a new habit, pick up a new practice, dive deeper. Don't try to go from zero to hero, but do, do keep going after these things. I wanna give you a scripture to dwell on. You can dwell on that prayer from St. Francis from the beginning, but I wanna give you a scripture to dwell on this week, Ephesians 4. Uh, verse 4 through to verse 9. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, oh, I love the peace of God, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there are any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things. Practicing the way of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, our oldest son was at a football tournament. The team didn't finish up very good, but he came home pretty pumped, and hopefully he's not embarrassed by the story. Sorry if you are. Uh, pretty pumped about a couple of goals he got, shared the videos with us. They're sort of these amazing goals, kicking the ball from the corner, bending it all the way over everybody and into the top far post, top corner of the, far, of the goal. Just amazing, incredible goals. And uh, as I looked at these things, Katie and I were just like, man, we remember him spending years and years out the, at the school, out the back fence of our house, just kicking the ball, kicking the ball until literally his toes were bleeding. He practiced, he practiced, he practiced. And then when he's 19, he could nail shots that, you know, I could only dream of being able to do. I'm pretty sure he's been better at football since he was 10 than me. But you know, it's just like, practice and then over time the practice just becomes a way of life and that's what Jesus is inviting us into. He's the expert on how to live life and he is the expert on how to live your life. Today I want you to make a fresh intention through repentance, through commitment to being someone growing in their practices because you want to be an apprentice. Take some time in your curated homes to share honestly about your spiritual practices with each other. Uh, maybe some of the guilt, remember, is actually the Holy Spirit inviting you to hunger for these things in a greater way. And please reach out through email and through the Connect tab if you want any more help or teaching or resources on any particular practices. All we're here to do is help and serve you being formed in Christ. And so let's just imagine becoming a church that's practicing the way of Jesus together in deeper and deeper ways.